The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. Well, hello from Borneo, I guess. Yes, I am in a place called Kota Kinabalu. This is Malaysian Borneo. It's on the north eastern tip of the of, of the island of Borneo, not too far from the kingdom of Brunei and just across the mountains from uh, Indonesia. Did you get me an orangutan? No, we went on a, on a uh, jungle walk yesterday, and the only thing I could find was a viper, and he was sleeping in a tree. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be shaking that tree. No, you actually don't. I'll send you the picture. He got, I actually got pretty close to him. But uh, he was he was dead dead asleep. Today, so today we're going on uh, on an orangutan hunt and uh, with bananas within food. We're not going to go kill him because we're actually <laughs> in this is a, a this is actually an orangutan rehab facility. A rehab facility for orangutans who've fallen off the wagon. Uh, well, what happens is that a lot of these these little guys are are either abandoned by their troop or their mothers or were taken in as pets and then somebody realized that these are giant apes and they're probably not the best pets so they are orphaned and uh, they are given to the sanctuary and the sanctuary here has to rehab them so they turn into uh, proper jungle apes one more time damn you justin bieber <laughs> yeah here we From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Road trips, punk music, and cyberpunk will connect the dots between the National Lampoon's Vacation, CBGB's, and Max Headroom. Before you pre-order that Apple Watch, a Canadian startup wants to offer you the watch, the laptop, the smartphone, all for less than 600 bucks. We'll introduce you to Simon Tian's Neptune. Post-fame celebrity careers. Ever thought about renovating a house? There's a connection here. We'll look at the list of famous, and they're not so famous, second lives. Plus, the winner of the limited edition Sonos Blue Note Play One. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Geeks and Beats writer Amber Healy's got this great collection uh, titled One More for the Road. It's all about a well-crafted soundtrack for when you're on a road trip. Do you have one? Because I've got a, a, a particular track I like to play. When we finally hit the open road, it's Holiday Road by Lindsay Buckingham. <laughs> Uh, do I? Uh, I have a series of driving playlists, but I don't know if I have any open road ones. Um, okay, uh, okay, you'll think poorly of me. A vacation by the Go Go's. going to say a big metalhead, but you were definitely a rock-on in your teen formative years. The Go-Go's? Yeah, I know. I know. Okay, I'll give you another one. Um, teen formative years will go with Highway Star from Deep Purple. She's got Pearl Jam, Given to Fly, The Trues, Ishmael and Maggie, City in Color with Gord Downey, Sleeping Sickness from the 2009 Juno Awards, putting together a, a good soundtrack of a road trip 
takes time and it takes finesse. What's your top tip? Okay, there is a study. Uh, it's actually a series of studies in radio that says that when people are driving home from work, about somewhere between 30 and 50 percent of the people who are listening to the radio as they drive home from work are singing along and tapping on the steering wheel. So that should be your primary criteria, something that makes you want to sing along and enjoy the ride. Half the people listening to radio are actually singing along? That's what one this one study said. I thought that was rather interesting. Uh, so what I would suggest you do is just find those songs that make you want to go just a little bit more than the speed limit. I'll give you an example. There's a cracker and a song called Teen Angst, and that's always a dangerous one for me because it just uh, has that that um, sort of steady build in, in terms of not tempo, but in terms of intensity that uh, makes you go a little bit faster with each verse. As we worry now about people texting while driving, back when they started to include radios into cars, we were worried that simply the act of listening to the radio was sufficient to distract you from the important detail of keeping your eye on the road. Well, you have to be very careful, too, because back in the 1950s, Esso did another study, and they determined that rock and roll was a dangerous music to listen to while driving because of the, of the tempo, and it would cause people to speed up. And of course, as we all know, speed kills. So Esso actually was the study from Esso was used for the by the anti rock and roll crowd back. Oh, it was either the late fifties or early nineteen sixties. I remember reading about it, and uh, you know, got a little bit of uh, attention back then. Um, there was a story not that long ago out of I think Massachusetts uh, that somebody wanted to introduce a law that said that you shouldn't be listening to music while you're driving. It never passed. Um, I can't seem to find it right now. And I, I don't even know if I'm right, but I remember there was an American state. Somebody actually uh, wanted people to stop listening to music while they were driving. The Brain Injury Society has an article titled Music and Your Brain, A Deadly Lullaby of Distracted Driving. Back in 1930 was when the first car radio was rolled out by Gavin Corporation which we now know as Motorola. That's right. And they, they because they had the Victrola, which was the uh, in-home uh, gramophone, and then they decided they were going to call it a Motorola because it was in a motor car. Nearly 98% of those uh, tested while doing the Ben-Gurion University of Negev uh, study uh, had concluded that at least they, they were deficient in at least three driving behaviors, speeding, one-handed driving, or tailgating, and about a third of the drivers were so distracted that they needed a quick verbal command to get them back on track. One in five required immediate steering or braking assistance, all because apparently they were listening to the radio. Yeah, and I would imagine we heard something similar back in 1965 and early 1966 when the 8-track was first installed in cars. Ford was the first to uh, give you those 
And then uh, towards the early 70s, we ended up with a cassette player. And then in 1984, we had the CD player. The six-pack changer came shortly thereafter. And people have always been complaining. I mean, you remember when people were uh, complaining about cassettes flying, uh, uh, sliding all over the floor, over the, over the passenger seat, mm-hmm. and up and down the dashboard? You know, that was distracted driving. And people who were, you know, loading CDs, you know, that was a distracted driving behavior. People who were loading six-pack changers, well, that was a distracted driving behavior. So we've always had this problem problem, but uh, I don't think we're ever going to see a solution to it, do you? To your point about how it's always been a problem, when vehicles first entered the roads of, of New York City, uh, the uh, rule was that you needed a flag man. Yeah, to go in front of you to uh, keep from scaring the horses and get people out of the way. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, meantime, you found this new book on the punk scene. Yeah, Legs McNeil and uh, Gillian McCain wrote a great book a number of years ago called Please Kill Me, which was a definitive oral history of the rise of punk rock in New York City. Very good book. Anybody who's interested from anybody from, you know, the Velvet Underground through the Ramones and forward has to read this book. It's very, very good. And it's an oral history, so it's told by the people who were actually there and who actually witnessed these things. Well, they're turning their attention to the L.A. scene, which was much different from the New York scene, came later. And uh, it was more of a, co- uh, a widespread countercultural thing that uh, went from basically San Francisco down to Orange County. Uh, the book is probably two years away from being published. It's about half done, but I'm really looking forward to this because Please Kill Me was such a really, really good book. So they'll talk about bands like, uh, you know, The Germs and The Mask Club and probably the stuff that was going on in the Bay Area, like, uh, you know, The Dead Kennedys and so on and The Vandals. So it should be should be good. Punk History 101 question for you. Okay. CBGB. Yes. First of all, is that an acronym for something specific? Yes. Country, blues, and bluegrass. Okay. So country, bluegrass, and blues. And then underneath it, the awning used to read O-M-F-U-G. Other music for urban gourmandizers. While you're focused on the history of punk, I was focused this week on the history of Max Headroom. I got, I posted this, and I got so many emails about Max Headroom because it was April 4th, 1985, yep. uh, 30 years ago that Max Headroom debuted. I guess it was at ABC. I want to know is, who is suppressing the story? What is it somebody doesn't want us to know? Come with me live and right now. Let's go and get some answers. All right, let's roll. I'm going in. My guards are doing nothing. belief is that Max Hedrum started out as a TV show and then became a Coke commercial, but it actually predates that. (laughs) Max Hedrum was initially started up as a means of competing with MTV in Britain with creating a talking head that would do interstitials between music videos. They built an elaborate backstory to explain how Max Headroom came to be in the first place. And after that, they got so excited about the prospect of making a mini movie based upon it that they weren't interested in making an MTV music video style TV show anymore. They wanted to make a pilot. I guess it was always Matt Froyer who was uh, Max Headroom, right? Matt Frewer, Canadian. Born in D.C. but raised in in Ontario. While most people assume Max Headroom was computer generated, it was Frewer wearing rubberized makeup and headgear to give off that impression. And then they took a, a, a commercial that they had used for something unrelated with the background and crazy, crazy wavy lines, turned that in the background for Max Hedrum. And next thing you know, Max Hedrum was born. We were getting into sampling back then. 
So uh, his his speech patterns, you know, that wasn't him doing it. That was actually added in post-production. What I want to know is why aren't more people inventing useful things like Mr. Bobby, 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 Bobby Ashimura, who wins our Max Headroom Product of the Month Award for coming out with a little attachment you plug into your TV and it warns you that the commercial break is coming by automatically switching off your set for five seconds. And here to demonstrate it for us is Mr. Ashimura himself. Okay, Bob, take it away. Yeah, you know, and, and then the, there was a song by uh, Art of Noise called Paranoia. Am I dreaming? No. Where am I? In bed? What am I doing? Talking to myself. Look, I must have a star on my door. I better still. A door? A door? A door? Swing doors, huh? Okay, doors. Swing. People remember Max Headroom back before the internet and before uh, YouTube and before everything else. A very, you know, if you can find it on YouTube or someplace, watch a couple of episodes and you'll see that it's pretty prescient about the way things turned out today. Own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. So it's Apple Watch pre-order week. Are you all excited? Yeah. Isn't it the kind of thing you really want to put on your wrist and get a good look at before you drop 800 to $1,200 on? So I have a feeling I'm going to wait until I can actually see what the thing looks like before dropping the big bucks. I'm definitely not going to pre-order one. There's no way. I'm, I'm going to wait and go to a store and see and put it on my wrist and, and see what it looks like and feels like and all the rest of it. There's no way I'm going to do that. But I, I, I probably will end up getting the watch just the same. Geeks and Beats writer Jason Tolman, meantime, has got himself a day job now as a PR flack, and he pointed me in the direction of Neptune Suite on Indiegogo. It's a smartwatch, but it's also a phone, it's a tablet, it's a keyboard, it's a wireless headset, and it's only 600 bucks. It's cheaper than most of those Apple Watches available, and on Indiegogo, he's already about 40 grand shy of a million dollars, 10 times greater than his initial goal amazing don't you think well yeah i mean i wonder where all these indiegogo people come from and open their wads but okay this sounds like an interesting piece of gear simon tian is the man behind neptune suite and he joins us now simon good to have you with us thanks for having me you're based out of montreal quebec you've been working on this for how long now and you've got about a million dollars dedicated in donations yeah so we've been working on on the concept for uh, a bit more than a year now. How do you compete against Apple and Google? Well, our product is is, is very different. Uh, it, it is a wearable, but it, it is a wearable that allows you to be uh, the center of your computing life in the sense that it's you know it's a suite of products that are centered around uh, this wearable computing hub uh, that has all of your processing power and, and your connectivity, uh, which is very differentiated from. What the what the competition such as the Apple Watch um, or the Galaxy Gear, which are more like uh, Bluetooth peered uh, smartwatches to your smartphone. So what's what's your operating system? Is it Android? Yep, yep, full uh, Android lollipop. What makes this different aside from it being an all round hub? The, the 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 watch looks more like a, a bracelet than anything else. Yes, yes, correct, and uh, we've. You know, on, on the on the hub itself, that's how we call it. Um, 
the the user experience has been has been rethought uh, and reinvented so that uh, it makes a lot more sense um, for minimal applications like sending emails uh, or responding to texts or checking time notifications, etc. I noticed you've uh, rebranded the smartphone as the pocket screen. I guess this gives you a sense as to where we're going from here once wearables become big. The, the vision here is that. Uh, eventually, all of our our devices that are non-wearable, right, that are are, are sort of uh, you know these existing form factors that we see today, like the smartphone and a tablet and a laptop and all those things, uh, you know, now that there's a computing hub that's always on you at all times, there, there's no more need for a repetition of computing power and connectivity within all all these all these devices, and so. Um, yeah, eventually we see all these other products being uh, replaced by, you know, dummy peripheral versions of themselves. Yeah, sort of like dumb attachments that only have to do one or two things. Exactly. So it's just like a keyboard or a mouse or a monitor. You know, their, their sole purpose is to augment um, your, your user experience um, and, and for you to interact with the computer and vice versa. Um and, and so, you know, there, there's a lot of benefits that we see out of this. It, it gives you a seamless, you know, computing experience because you're always using the same, uh, the same device, right, just on different screen sizes. You don't need to sync between devices. Um, everything's always secure on your wrist because, you know, all your files and apps are on you at all times. Um, and, and the whole ecosystem gets more cost-effective as well because we don't see this same repetition of computing power and, and connectivity across all your devices. So how, so how is this different from the Apple Watch and how it's going to interact with iOS? Um, or is so, it just a variation of that? Yeah, Apple Watch is, is much like all the smartwatches out there currently. So it's it's basically a sort of dumb you know, Bluetooth accessory that really just depends on the presence of your smartphone nearby and acts as uh, you know, a second screen for a smartphone, basically. Whereas in our case, there's an inversion, right? So the the, the wearable uh, that's on you at all times is the act, the true personal device um, that carries all the computing uh, and the connectivity. Where and the smartphone is reinvented to be uh, just you know another peripheral device. So that's how we, we were really different from, from Apple Watch. Okay. You were 961% oversubscribed here. You're up about a million dollars almost. What are you going to do with all that walking around money? <laughs> uh, so the money is 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 there to uh, you know fund the next stage uh, of our development, which is to actually get um, the, the design into tooling, uh, get it into production, get it certified. Um, and eventually have it shipped to all of our our, uh, our supporters. I got to tell you, though, I think the Apple Watch is, is still in my future here. Convince me otherwise. The Apple Watch is is this peripheral device that's paired to your smartphone. Um, it doesn't really um, do anything that's different from what your smartphone does, right? And it's just this, you know, your smartphone does everything anyways that you're your smartwatch does, and if you have to carry your smartphone around all the time for that device to work, uh, that's where we don't see a, a true purpose, right? Because there's no uh, added use cases that you weren't 
uh, able to do before. Whereas in our case, there, there's scenarios where you, you know you, you might not necessarily want to carry uh, that pocket-sized device. You know, you might be jogging outside, you might be attending a party, uh, and and there's a lot of scenarios where a more minimal interface directly on your wrist that's more accessible um, is is all you need. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's how we differentiate uh, mainly from the Apple Watch, but we also differentiate from just the whole ecosystem that uh, that Apple or Microsoft or, or Google are, are, are built on, which is um, a lot of computing devices that are separate, that are each uh, extremely valuable and personal devices, which are which you know brings issues of security, uh, syncing, uh, and, and cost as well. Right, each device is very expensive, so we're we're solving issues um, in in those areas as well. Simon, all the best to you. Glad to hear Local Boy makes good. Thanks for having me. Bye. Simon Tian is the creator of Neptune Suite, a smartwatch, phone, tablet, and keyboard for 600 bucks. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. Now, what is this business about us making some actual money during this show? <laughs> I know. How crazy is that? We announced that we were giving away a limited edition Sonos Play One Blue Note speaker in this beautiful shade of blue that's been sprayed by robots. <laughs> uh, and the only way that you could win it is if you signed up to Patreon and become a, a patron of the big show. And for every dollar that you uh, donated per episode, we would add a, a ticket into this raffle like thing and we have made more money than god on this <laughs> well not quite no we made about 400 bucks that's really good and again we know we're going to plow this back into the show we're not going to just run away with this we're actually going to use it to to make things better and actually maybe pay some of our interns which we which we do not pay we'll, we'll pay them through liquid refreshment oh, is that, okay good yes mm. so of course the big question is, is who has won? Yes. And I, I think Michael Haig's um, big plan of dropping $100 paid off. The way it works, $1 per entry. So $100 equals 100 entries. Random draw. Statistically, he has the better chance. He wins. Yep. And well, he wasn't the only one to do that, by the way. And in addition, anytime you donate 100 bucks uh, for an episode of the show, you become a patron in residence, which gives you the ability to request a specific topic be discussed. And we send you a swag pack that's autographed, too. So we thank you very much, Michael. You're not the only one who tried that routine, but you are the one who won. He's a 41-year-old Beamsville, Ontario man. He says he's got a love of music and has all his life. He's in the 10th year of marriage to his best friend, Sandra. So, of course, we hate every moment of him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says he's a coach for the Niagara football, and he's been coaching his nephews, uh, and now they're off to college after all these years. So, in addition to music, uh, he's, uh, he's a big sports fan as well, and I can imagine the Sonos Play 1 will come in very handy. I would imagine it will. Very good. Okay. 
Now, as I said, he's not the only one who had this brilliant idea. Wesley Sadgrove uh, donated $100 as well, and he did something uh, which uh, is uh, very um, financially smart. He set a $100 lifetime limit for his donations, too, so we thank you for the big upfront uh, on that. So, Wesley, you can uh, pick a topic for next week's show, and we'll send you the swag pack as well. But uh, we also have uh, Geeks and Beats co-producer Stephen Lung. Uh, he uh, paid $25, so we'll not only mention him on the big show, but he also uh, gets uh, the digital download of the album art that he can print off and hang in his parents' basement because it is suitable for framing. Yes, it is. Oh, well, that's great. Well, congratulations. I'm, listen, as a person who owns some Sonos gear, I can guarantee you, I can absolutely vouch for you that you will have a fantastic experience with this thing. You're a big fan of the Sonos. When the Sonos first came out, I was not because I did not like the iPhone interface. They have changed it substantially since then. Is it any better? Put it this way. My wife knows how to use it. Your wife can't send a text message and she's actually using this? Exactly my point. Wow. Yes, and she loves it. It is so solid, so intuitive, so easy to use. I've got it on all the iPads and all the iPhones. So anybody who can just uh, pick one up in the, in, in the house and, and play with the Sonos system. It's fantastically good. Very solid. Really happy to hear that. Um, particularly, we want to thank not only Sonos, but also IPR that made this possible as well. John Satino, thank you for your support of the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. I figure that once this show runs its course and uh, people stop listening and stop donating and the thing grinds to a halt, that uh, this uh, article on post-fame celebrity careers will give us a jumping off point for what's next in our lives. Yeah, let's have a look at this. Post-fame celebrity careers. Yes. Cracked Magazine has compiled a list of the seven most WTF post-fame celebrity careers, including uh, Jeff Cohen, who was Chunk from the Goonies, uh, James Brian Helwig, who uh, I know you're a big fan of the World Wrestling uh, Entertainment Organization. He was the ultimate warrior. Uh, after the spotlight, uh, he actually became a motivational speaker and uh, made national headlines for, quote, his eloquent views on homosexuality. Peter Weller, known as RoboCop, became a fine arts uh, specialist. And then Mason Betha, a.k.a. rapper Maze. Uh, do you know who I'm talking about? No, no. Was, I remember the name, but that's about all. His uh, day job was to cameo on bad boy singles and wear whatever insane jumpsuit Puffy was sporting that week. You know what's missing from here is, uh, okay, Terry Chimes from The Clash went on to be a chiropractor. I know knew that. What about Bill Berry, the drummer from R.E.M.? He was a farmer. He uh, likes making hay outside of Athens, Georgia. I knew that. But you know who's missing here? Vanilla Ice. Vanilla Ice reinvented himself as a house flipper, didn't he? Vanilla Ice. Hip-hop icon. Home renovation expert. In order to sell this house, we want to give it some extra wow. This up here, this is our new project. All of this is coming down. We are going to pimp this mother out. It's hammer time. Vanilla style. That's the way we want to do it. I haven't had that much fun in a long time. <laughs> Word to your contractor. Bam, bam, bam. The Vanilla Ice Project. Sunday at 8. Catch Junk Brothers weekdays at 6.30 on DIY Network. Recently, he was uh, arrested for burglary because apparently he broke into a client's house to get something. I, I don't know what's going on there, but it's a bit weird. But yeah, he, he had it was the uh, Vanilla Ice Project. He had a renovation show that my wife used to watch. One of the weirdest experiences I ever got was on the Geeks and Beats Twitter feed. One night, just sitting there with wifey, enjoying an evening in front of the tube, and my iPhone popped up to tell me that Vanilla Ice was following us. 
<laughs> so he is, is he? He's following us, and I've been badgering him ever since to have him come on the show because you know me, I'm a huge renovation nerd. Not only am I a computer geek with all the toys, I have got all the tools as well, and I love swinging a hammer. Yes, you do, and you're much better at this sort of stuff than I am. I've seen your kitchen, and you have a very, very well-equipped kitchen. Very good. Uh, and then you had to actually, what did you do? You had to put a brand new beam to make sure your house was actually square again? When we saw the uh, the original uh, floor plans for the house that we got from the city of Toronto, uh, there was a big circle around the load-bearing wall that read, confirm not load-bearing. Well, the house flipper who we bought the house from tore it out and basically broke the house. That combined with the fact that your foundation in Canada, because of the frost, needs to be four feet below the surface, because the frost line is three feet. How many feet was my uh, back half of my house? Six inches below the surface. Oh, okay, so there's your problem. Stiff wind, the back half of the house would, would shake and vibrate. It's all good now. It's the only house that'll survive Hurricane Hazel 2.0. It wasn't it wasn't that sort of leaning to one side too. It was well because once you once you take out the, uh, on a load bearing wall that main wall, it's almost like removing the front and the back walls of a cardboard box and makes the box floppy. Yeah, and that's kind of what happened with me. Is not only because um, we didn't have a proper foundation, the house was sliding down the hill. <laughs> It was also bowing out on the sides, six whole inches on the sides. They they uh, hung one of those uh, uh, plum levels to, to figure out that it was six whole inches that the, the walls were bowing out on the side. Now, it's fantastic. But uh, at the time, it was really quite frightening that given it a couple more years, the house literally would have collapsed upon itself. But uh, I don't, I, I can't imagine Vanilla Ice really knowing what he's talking about here. I Listen, I've seen the show. He's, he does know what he's doing. He's, uh, he can swing a hammer just as well as you, maybe better. What's even more amazing is that the man is still alive after new research shows that that uh, the whole idea that the majority of the most popular musicians in the world die young, leave a good body, uh, new research shows that they live well past the age of 27. Yeah, the 27 Club is a big myth. Uh, the only the problem with it is that there are a number of people, very high-profile people, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Jim Morrison, um, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse. They have all died at age 27, so there's this, somehow this... this the stigma with that that particular age, but no. If you if you look at the statistics, and you'll see that most musicians do live beyond twenty seven. It's no, you know, it's a good idea. And uh, most people live into their 40s and 50s. My favorite meme that's been making the rounds lately is a picture of Keith Richards, and the caption below it reads, "We need to start thinking." about what kind of world we are leaving for Keith Richards. <laughs> I know, because this guy will never, ever die. I mean, or it's possible that he is already dead. He just hasn't realized it yet. He's 71. I know, but you look at him and you think, my God, this is somebody that they found way up in the Alps, uh, buried under rock and snow for 8,000 years. Yeah, he looks like he's 171. The Rolling Stones are going back on out on tour again. They're playing, it's called the Zip Code Tour, and they're playing all these secondary markets across the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, with the exception of uh, a big festival in Quebec. And the meme was, Keith Richards is smoking an extra carton of Marlboro Reds to get in shape. <laughs> You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network.
All right, pop quiz. How long did it take for Beyonce's exclusive song on the new Tidal music streaming service to end up on YouTube? Uh, don't get me started about Tidal. This whole thing is just such a waste of time. I get so angry with the arrogance that these people are showing um, the this, this 16 co-signatories to this thing that's supposed to change the world for musicians. <clears throat> but here's the answer. Uh, it took mere minutes mere minutes and Sony of course which is Beyonce's record label immediately went with the copyright takedowns and as soon as one was taken down another one popped up and then another one popped up and then another one popped up so it's musical whack-a-mole it's exactly was musical whack-a-mole so this idea of keeping an exclusive feature um, on on title is it's 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 untenable and you know that that a lot of people consider the the whole title thing to be very, very unpopular because it seems to be a service for the one percenters. You're going to see people going after this again and again and again. I have no idea how this is going to survive. What makes it a, a service for the one percenters, as I understand it, is the cost. Uh, it's uh, There's a, a two-part price tag for this. You can either pay $9.99 a month for regular audio, uh, but if you uh, want high def, which most likely means you're either high or deaf, you'll pay 20 bucks a month. Yeah, and there is no free tier, so you either pay or you don't pay, and if you don't pay, you don't get it. And, you know, it, it just drives me nuts that, you know, Jay-Z is saying that this is about the mu- music not being free. So they're not offering this free tier. We have to have some sort of value, uh, ascribe some sort of monetary value to music. So this is why we're not offering this free tier that Spotify and RDO and all the rest of them do. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, when you have a free tier, you have people that sample and then maybe you can convert to paying customers, in which case your royalty payments to your artist goes up. What a lot of people are, are thinking is that, that you know, the Spotify's and the RDO's and, and so on are the evil people. They're the ones that are paying out so little to musicians when it's not their fault. Uh, they're only following the payouts that they negotiated with the publishing companies, the performing rights organizations, and the record labels. So the artist's fight is not with Spotify and RDO and all the rest of them. It is with their record label, the people that were supposed to be looking out for the best interests of the artists. And this title has exactly the same deals as RDO and Spotify. So I don't know where uh, Jay-Z is getting off on saying that this is a better deal for anybody but artists. And even then, they're going to have to, you know, have a critical mass of subscribers for what they start to see some some serious payouts. I'm on SpotifyArtist.com, which tries to explain the money behind Spotify as an alternative to title. Of course, is that the average American paying listener per year? In other words, someone who buys music they spend an average of $55 per year on music. And I can imagine that's downloading and compact discs and nonsense. And concert tickets. This is according to the NPD group, uh, the music consultancy group. Spotify users, however, spend $120. But to your point, very little of that actually makes it to the musicians, which is in part, I think, why uh, Taylor Swift had her temper tantrum. The issue, to your point, is that you've got to have these musicians talking to the record labels, not to the streaming music people because the streamers aren't the bad guys in this story it's the people who they've been cozying up with for the past what 100 years of music publishing and what a lot of people don't seem to know is that the record labels own pieces of spotify and rdo and all the rest of it oh that i did not know so your issue artists is not is with your record label michael jackson allegedly paid out millions in hush money 
Yeah, we got to be careful about this one, although the guy is dead. In what way do we have to be careful? Because of the litigious nature of the Jackson family? Yeah, let's just... Or because you're worried that he's going to rise from the grave and hunt you? I saw the thriller video. It's possible. But is anybody really surprised that a lot of hush money was paid out, allegedly? Wait a minute. This is courtesy of the Daily Mail, which we know is referred to as the Daily Fail. So I don't know how much credence we can give this that he, according to this headline, paid out $200 million in hush money to as many as 20 sexual assault victims. And again, in the effort to ensure that we sort of keep things all on the level here, I don't think sexual assault victims is appropriate, uh, Sexual alleged sexual assault victims, because I don't think any of this really has has gone to court or anything like that. No, it's not. The, these, this, these are behind-the-scenes allegations. These are the things that were not uh, dealt with in, in public court. So I hate Michael Jackson even more for making me feel uncomfortable about not about potentially disparaging his name. Yes, I can understand what you're saying. But again, you know, this was the, he was the biggest pop star in the world. You had to protect that brand and that image. And there was lots of money to protect it. So if you needed to do something like this, you did it. Uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but I can see it happening. Los Angeles Superior Court Judge Mitchell Beckloff has scheduled a hearing uh, for an alleged victim uh, that could decide whether or not their claims proceed on what is a one and a half billion dollar estates. Uh, according to this article, one lawsuit alone is alleged to have cost Jackson $40 million. There is a reason why this guy was in financial straits when he died. There was a reason why they had to uh, do this or plan this 50-night stand in, in, in England. He needed the money. And uh, he had already mortgaged his back catalog, of not only of his back catalog, but of the catalog of the Beatles songs that he owned, just so he could keep things moving forward financially. So uh, the thing that rescued Jackson was his death and the fact that everybody started buying records again. And then they went and saw the movie and that he has uh, become this, this massive sort of uh, uh, legendary icon that is no longer spending his own money. Who owns the Michael Jackson catalog these days? Uh, Sony ATV owns a big chunk of it. But the family retains a, um, a, a good sizable amount. And doesn't Sony also own most of the Beatles catalog as well? Because I, I thought at one point as well, one of the Beatles owned a lot of Michael Jackson music. Well, what happened was that that was some of the music that Jackson put up as collateral to maintain his lifestyle. And a lot of this, that music, a lot of that Beatles music uh, reverted to Sony ATV. So they have it. Paul McCartney wants it, but the, the it's just so valuable that he can't afford it. You've got a warning when it comes to One Direction, or at least its fans. Yes, let's just play the clip, and you'll understand what I mean. Just tell me two things, Zane. Which one in the band were you? <laughs> and where were you during the Boston Marathon? Oh. Yeah, okay. Aside from looking similar to the Boston Marathon bomber, I can understand why... 12-year-old girls might have a problem with the connection of Zayn Malik. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, do they even know about the Boston Marathon bombing? Well, listen, you can't say anything bad about One Direction or Zayn Malik because you will be completely pilloried. Uh, We'll probably be pilloried just for talking about this and drawing attention to it. So, One Direction fans, uh, please send all your email to uh, Michael Hainsworth. 
uh, and he can deal with it because he does have a young daughter and is much better at dealing with your kind than I. We were into the One Direction. She was very big on that, although she's not old enough yet to be, you know, her world to fall apart because they're not all together anymore. There, there is a history of all of this over time, you know, whether it be the Beatles all the way up to uh, the Backstreet Boys and, and all that nonsense, that uh, girls are going to scream over the boys who, who are pretty. Oh, always. It goes back all the way to Frank Sinatra and the Bobby Soxers and maybe even Valentino in the 1920s. So this is something that's always been the case just now that if you say something bad about it, social media explodes and then your head blows up. Yeah. So what is next for One Direction? Are they bi-directional now? Well, they obviously weren't pulling in One Direction. But are you honestly asking me this question? Do you think I honestly care? Really, honestly? <laughs> well, this is fascinating to me more from a business perspective than anything else, that you're building this world for little girls to consume, and it's all very innocent until one of them says, I've had enough. But this is the case. You know, it always happens with boy bands. I mean, you look back at NSYNC, you look back at the Backstreet Boys, you look back at, at uh, you know, any, any, any number of the boy bands that were around in the early part of the 2000s. Eventually, this stop becoming boys and they end up doing their own thing and um, for, for whatever reason maybe they feel that they need to go in a different creative direction maybe they feel that they've been um, disrespected or abused or ignored or whatever it is so they go off and do their own thing and you know best of luck to you. Speaking of which did you see the Justin Bieber roast? I saw the highlights from it yeah. Fantastic this is so fun I never roasted somebody with a bedtime before I gotta give you props, ask us to roast you. Ballsy move, dude. Especially since you haven't put out an album in three years. Come on, Beebs, what are you doing with your life? If you listen closely, you can hear the sound of One Direction f***ing your fans. <laughs> a lot of believers are upset that Justin's never won a Grammy. Well, there's Martha Stewart, she can be your Grammy. <laughs> Martha Stewart's here because Paula Dean refused to sit with this many black folk. What is this, the Comedy Central March on Ferguson? Justin, before I go, here's my final piece of advice. You need to settle down, bring some balance into your life. Find yourself the right gal, but she'll have to be someone on your level, someone powerful and famous and rich. Someone you can smoke a joint with or indulge in the occasional three-way. I'm talking about a playa in the boardroom and a freak in the bedroom. So, Justin, my final piece of advice is call me or... <laughs> do, you, do you think he's rehabilitating himself successfully here? Because at the very end, when he went on this big, long thing about um, how he's a changed man and stuff, and we all had to sit there and, and, and suffer through his mea culpa, I, I don't get the sense that this is a kid who learned anything. He sat there on the dais the entire night looking like he really didn't want to be there. No, no, this was strictly a, uh, a PR stunt that he had wanted absolutely nothing to do with. It was, I bet you it was created by his manager, Scooter Brown, and uh, he wanted nothing he did not want to participate, but realizing that he his public image is so awful, he needed to do something that uh, maybe changed the way people looked at him. At least he was reunited with his monkey. <laughs> that poor monkey. 
Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.